Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Today is part four of our series, our Easter series called Telling the Story. Uh, it is based, this series is based on the conviction uh, that the story of the gospel is not primarily a set of facts that you either believe or not, but rather a story that reveals truths about ourselves, the world, and God, uh, who then invites us to orient our lives according to those truths. So far, we've looked at uh, the Apostle Peter and his words, uh, first to a small group uh, gathered in the house of Cornelius, and then uh, last week we looked at Peter's words to a large crowd gathered on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Today, we want to begin and draw our attention to a different part of the story. Uh, We are going to begin to explore part of the Apostle Paul's story. The Apostle Paul is uh, not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, but rather came to know Christ after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then when he was tasked uh, with the incredible challenge and privilege of bringing the gospel uh, to the Gentile world. Uh, He wrote uh, the majority of our New Testament. Uh, He is, in fact, the world's foremost theologian and church planter. Uh, But the book of Acts records a lot of his missionary journeys, uh, his early ministry, and today we get to look at one snippet of that. And so I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Uh, I'm going to read verses 16 through 34. Acts 17, 16 through 34. Uh, This is where the Apostle Paul... Uh, is in the city of Athens. And I think uh, this story has a lot to teach us and to show us. Uh, It says this, While Paul was waiting for uh, them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, "Uh, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Now all the Athenians uh, and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing, but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine uh, being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day where he will judge uh, the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. After that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. In this part of the story, Paul visits Athens and sees the Athenians entertaining themselves with new ideas. Uh, I want you to keep in mind that this is before the onset of cable TV and cinema. And so for entertainment, they literally sat around and thought all day. Uh, At this point in history, the gospel has been well received by Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Uh, But the question was, could the gospel hold, uh, hold its own in the sophisticated intellectual culture of the university town? And this is, in fact, the question that is posed by the text. It would be something like, like this. You know, the gospel did fine when presented on the eastern plains of Colorado, uh, but can it withstand the sophistication of the front range? Uh, in Athens, a city full of philosophers and scholars who traffic in ideas, every uh, new religion, every new idea, every new god was welcomed, accepted, and then blended into the collective conscience of the group. Paul looks at this casserole of religious expression and calls it idolatry. Uh, So the question is, can he share the gospel effectively in such an environment? And that is, in fact, the question of the text. You know, it isn't much of a stretch for you and I to see that uh, the ancient Athens is a lot like the modern city. There are cities of every size where religious plurality abounds, where new gods and philosophies are accepted without much discretion at all. In fact, quick access to unlimited information via the internet has made us veterans in trafficking ideas and information. Except now we devote far less time to evaluating the merit of each new idea. We either accept or reject it with a snap judgment. In fact, if you are here today and you are a Christian, you have probably been taught to think about your faith in uh, pretty exclusive and certain terms, uh, which means it's very easy, uh, to, it's very easy to feel uneasy uh, about religious plurality or the abundance of new ideas. In fact, feeling uneasy probably isn't even a strong enough word. Threatened might, may be the, a word that is far more accurate. In fact, can we admit for a moment that we are sometimes threatened by religious expressions and different ideas? We feel often as though we need to guard or defend the truth against the threat of lies. And as we read the story of Paul in Athens, we might be tempted to label Athens as a terribly evil city. Uh, We might even be tempted uh, to tell Paul, uh, Paul... Stay away from downtown Athens. That's where all the evil philosophers hang out. Uh, You wouldn't want to be corrupted by their evil ideas. If you're anything like me, you would walk into an environment like Athens or even our own city, and you may feel like your faith is threatened uh, or that you need to defend the truth. But what we learn from looking at this story is that, in fact, Paul's response is much different. Paul goes into the city of Athens and starts telling people about Jesus. He's a faithful witness to the kingdom of Christ. His death, 
his, his resurrection, his life and ministry, proclaiming the reality of the kingdom of God. About how he was, this Jesus was the Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for the entire world. He was crucified, dead, and buried, but death could not hold this king, and he was raised from the dead. And so Paul walks into the city faithfully proclaiming the good news of Jesus the Messiah. And the philosophers respond with love, for they loved these new ideas, and they were curious about his message, and so they invite Paul to the Areopagus. Now, Areopagus was a prominent hillside in the city of Athens where the philosophers loved to hang out. It was the place where new ideas were birthed. And it's even accurate to say that some of the ideas uh, birthed in that place are still affecting the world today. And so this was the place. And Paul bringing in these new ideas, these, uh, the, this, this idea of resurrection uh, is invited to this prominent place where the philosophers hung out. It over, this place, this hill, overlooked the marketplace, and so with the buzz of the city just below, these philosophers would discuss and think about all the important matters of life. This place, this Areopagus, is also known as Mars Hill. Now, because of their love for ideas, gods, worship, this hill had an altar. But because of all the different philosophies and and gods that were being uh, recognized and thought about, the altar simply was inscribed to an unknown God. And so what we read then is that Paul stands up, chastises them for idolatry, and says, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you can say that you know for certain that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? (laughs) No, he doesn't do that. No, what Paul does is he speaks up in the Areopagus, Mars Hill. He stands up and he compliments those who are listening for their discernment. Their discernment that something large in life, the big questions need to be addressed in order to figure out how to make sense of life And how to give the world coherence. And so he stands up not with a heart of condemnation. But rather a heart of compassion. Praising their discernment. That something, the big questions need to be asked. He sees their love affair with ideas and philosophies. As a spiritual searching. Now, make no mistake, they are idolaters, but Paul does not respond uh, to them by pointing out all the ways in which they are wrong and then, in fear, defending the truth about who God is. Rather, what he does is he points out the truth all around them that they already understand, and then he attributes those things to the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ as the source of all that truth. And I think this is a really important distinction for us to recognize that in a, in, a, in a culture of religious plurality, Paul does not feel as though his faith is threatened and he must defend the truth, but rather his approach is to say, you are spiritually seeking, your discernment to ask the big questions is valid, and now let me point out to you all the truth that you already know, but let me show you that Jesus Christ, the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, is the source of that truth. 
He says this, the God that you worship as unknown, I will make known to you. And then he appeals to them using natural theology. Natural theology is theology uh, that comes from observance of the natural world. And so he says, see all of creation around you. God is the creator of the world and all that is in it. You can almost hear him saying, they're, they're, uh, I want you to imagine they're up on a hilltop uh, high above the city. And so you can, you can almost hear him saying, look at these stars. How could there not be a divine force behind all of this? And then he goes on to say that God as creator dwells in his creation, not in temples made by human hands. And I want you to notice here that his understanding of, of God is far different than even the Old Testament writers. And it isn't because God has changed, but because God has not yet been fully understood or revealed by the, to, by the, by the people of God or to the people of God. And so God now has fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And Paul is starting to put all of this together. And Paul's one of, one of the conclusions now is that Paul says the, the presence of God now permeates all of creation and his presence is no longer limited to just the temple made by human hands but God as creator of all now permeates his creation with his presence it's this, this beautiful picture of, of Paul saying I, I want you to recognize what you already know and then he uses that as a way of leading them and pointing them to the truth of Jesus Christ. And so not only does he appeal to natural theology, look at the all of creation. God is, in fact, the creator of all that is, and he permeates this creation with his presence. But then Paul appeals to their common humanity. He says, God uh, did this so that we would seek him, that we might come to know him. In other words, Paul is essentially saying all of this this exploration of ideas, Jesus is the point of all of that. Because the reason that God has done what he has done is so that we would seek him, that we would pursue this truth that you are pursuing with all of your philosophies and ideas and religions. Paul then eventually gets to the, to the big uh, crescendo of his argument, in him we live and move and have our being. It's as though Paul is saying he is as big and mysterious as the greatest mysteries your mind can even create or comprehend. And yet he is as close and as intimate as your very next breath. And I don't know what picture you have of God this morning, but I think that's a really good place to start. That when we think about God, God is as big and as mysterious as the greatest mysteries we can even come up with. And yet at the very same time, God is as close and as intimate as our very next breath. Which is to say that as we get to know God more and more, our vision of God, our view of God, our perspective of God ought to be getting bigger, not smaller. And then Paul moves to the resurrection of Jesus Christ because appeals to natural theology and common humanity will only go so far. Eventually, we all must come to a place where we decide, what are we going to do with the rumor 
of resurrection. You see, the resurrection is important to Paul's argument that he's making on, this, on Mars Hill as, because he's pointing out natural theology, he's appealing to their common humanity, but then he, he appeals to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that changes everything because the resurrection uh, is, is totally counter to natural theology. Uh, when things die, they're dead. And what Paul does is he begins to infuse this idea of, of resurrection as a way of opening their eyes to, the, to the, uh, the beauty of who God is. And in fact, I, I would imagine that he says, you know, things uh, are, are dead when, as soon as they're dead. Just look around you. But this Jesus Christ was raised by God from the dead to offer new life. And then I imagine him circling right back around and appealing once again to natural theology. And he would say, look, look at the... Look at the leaves that wither, fade, die, and fall. But then, come spring, there's signs of new life. Look at the grass that goes dormant and dies in the winter, but then in the spring turns green and is again brought to new life. It's as though he's saying resurrection is is totally outside of the norm, and yet God in his wisdom has infused this world with this idea of resurrection. And so its, its truth is our assurance that God stands both over and above all of creation. In fact, if you are here today and you are uncertain about faith in Christ, thank you for being here and in your seeking May you find truth. Because we have gathered as a community to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reality of resurrection provides assurance that new life is possible, that God stands over all of creation, and that will one day bring a new creation about where all things will be made right. But I think for the majority of us who are here this morning, You are probably already a believer. And this passage has lots to say to us. In our world, you will run into religious diversity everywhere. In your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, clubs, and sports teams. You will come across people who claim no faith at all. You will likely build relationship with people who claim another faith. Maybe people who are indifferent to faith. Or perhaps folks who, on an equal ground, an equal level, accept all faith expressions. My invitation to you today is to respond to our context of religious plurality. Uh, Not with fear, and not even with this sense that we somehow need to defend the truth. But rather, could we begin to gain a posture of pointing out the truth that we see all around us and wherever we find it? You see, the church, rather than standing back and and pointing our collective finger in righteous indignation at those who aren't like us, should rather minister to the searching Practice the love of God. And for goodness sake, make a friend with someone who practices another faith. Or someone who just claims no faith at all. Because a feeling of threat and a posture of defense does nothing for 
building conversation or bridges, but rather burns bridges and cuts off conversation. And so I wonder if we could be a community of people that knows and recognizes today that all truth belongs to God, that all truth is most properly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, no matter its source or where it is found. And may we go into the world pointing people to the truth of him who was crucified and resurrected. And then as we do that, may we leave the results up to God. Because as the text says, some mocked Paul's message and others believed. And so we must recognize today that the proclamation of the Christian gospel does not guarantee a unanimous response, but rather is likely met with very mixed responses. And we should be prepared to accept the same. I love this part of the story. Paul in Athens, standing up, And saying, this God, whom you worship as unknown, I will make known to you. And I want to just invite us to take on a similar posture. Not of threat, not of fear, but of love as proclaimers of the truth of Jesus Christ. Of the one who lived proclaiming the kingdom, who died bearing sin, and who defeated evil through resurrection. Amen? May we be that people.